Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 48. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Pretty good, pretty good. Did you guys have a good week? Stayed up a little bit late last night watching the game. Yeah, I heard something about that. <laughs> <laughs> My wife had to tell me who won. And then I asked, had to ask who they played. <laughs> <laughs> well, if it makes you feel any better, Alex, uh, we were talking to my son about, and he was like, is it the Bengals or the Reds playing in the Super Bowl? So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're a little bit better off than a four-year-old. Yeah. No, Just he's six. He's six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we got a little follow-up this week. Yeah, so I spent a good part of last week in my free time digging through the parse server code and looking at a lot of the articles and migration guides that have been published and you know it's really kind of reassuring the number of platform as a service providers that have published detailed migration paths for app developers out there that are depending on parse and, yeah. you know, to be honest, looking through the code and seeing the activity from the community on the open source parse server, I actually think in a lot of ways, it's a good thing. You know, before we would recommend parse to somebody who had a concept they wanted to prove or an early stage startup that didn't really have the funding to build their own backend. You know, parse was really supposed to be the platform where you know, the back end where you didn't have to write any code to to have a robust mobile back end. And they did a good job delivering that. And now, you know, they've kind of proven that, that you can't really rely on that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's definitely some shops uh, popping up that are offering parse-like features, or some of them are running the parse server and, and adding the missing pieces. But I think now with the open source parse server, you can get a lot of functionality for free if you're willing to uh, dig in and learn Node.js and Express. You know, it's got a lot of what you want out of the box for a backend solution. And I think where there are gaps, the community is going to be working to to plug most of those gaps. So that's pretty reassured by by what's going on in with parse server makes me feel good because i've been taking that just kind of wait and see what people come up with approach and it seems like people are coming up with lots of stuff so yeah looking like i'll keep waiting <laughs> yeah and there's a lot of companies really excited about this and you know it ranges from ibm to small boutiques startups that probably won't be around by this time uh, parse.com is actually shut down, but, um, yeah. <laughs> but you know, we're, we're blessed with a ton of options. Well, it's, it's amazing. I, I looked at the code not long after it was released and it was pretty basic, but as of today, there's been 178 commits and that's what just over 
almost two weeks now. Yeah, yeah. I made the mistake of watching the repo, and I started getting flooded with email. <laughs> I think overnight I had uh, around 50 emails. So um, there's a lot of activity, a lot of people jumping in and contributing. Uh, I think in some ways the platform might be better in the long run with the community driving it. Hopefully that enthusiasm and con community support continues for a long time. Yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing a version of it that was implemented in Go or something like the latest parse code was. But Yeah, well, I got the impression, and I could be wrong, that they were moving to Node.js from Go. Uh, I don't, and I'm basing that off of a commit message that was talking about the Go version versus the Node version. But maybe, maybe the Node was just the open source plan that they had and and not the production code yeah i don't yeah i would i feel like they went from ruby to to go because it was a lot better and a lot faster and then to go back to a basically you know somewhat interpreted somewhat, language but, and I think, there's so many companies who have spent so much time and effort optimizing the crap out of javascript yes yeah. yeah. it doesn't have the same performance characteristics as your typical interpreted language i think there's less of a gap between go and node.js than there is between node.js and ruby oh you're going to get way more requests per second out of something like node yeah yeah so like node is from my perspective, Node is a little bit more enterprise-friendly, you know, from a performance and monitoring standpoint, as well as there's a lot of big tech and enter enterprises that have adopted Node.js internally. You know, Walmart, for example, built an entire web framework on top of Node.js. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I just have that hard time with JavaScript. Yeah, you just yeah. don't like the JavaScript. I can see that, Sam. <laughs> Well, as soon as there's a Swift equivalent to Express, I, I'll be all for switching over. Seems like in in all these different Swift newsletters, there's a new web framework every other week. I saw one today that aims to be like Express. I, the name slips my mind right now. I'd be curious. I haven't I haven't really seen too many promising web frameworks listed in the news that I follow, but. It's too early for any of them to be prompted, isn't it? Yeah. It was definitely early days. I didn't really click through to read it. But. I mean, the the great thing is they have good models like Express and, and Rack and Sinatra to model a Swift framework after. So hopefully somebody does that and it, it gets some traction because I'd really love to build my backend solutions using Swift. That would be pretty nice. Okay, real quick follow-up. It's called Blackfish. Blackfish, okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It was featured in one of the Swift newsletters. Um, the iOS Times. Actually, not Swift newsletter specifically. but Okay. Get a lot of these things nowadays. Yeah. yeah. Somewhat related to the the parse follow up is CloudKit announced that they have a server side 
API thing that they or they basically just announced like a couple days ago or I guess when you're hearing this like about a week ago. Um Yeah, I don't know how much of that is influenced by the parse announcement, but um it it makes CloudKit even less um unappealing. <laughs> Unappealing. It makes it less tied to the Apple ecosystem. I don't know what you can do with it exactly yet. Um, it, I think the intention is that server the server communication. So if you had your own backend solution, you know, say running on Heroku, you can talk to CloudKit and serve up content from CloudKit. But for user level data, you still need an iCloud account. So that yeah, I mean it. I mean, you can do it on Android. There's no reason you couldn't have like a have it shell out to your your web browser or your Android web view and go back to your app after logging into iCloud. I just can't see many Android users wanting to do that. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, creating that Apple ID. Not to say they don't have them; they probably have them. But some of them, the ones yeah. that are working on a Mac. They, they all have iPads at home, and they have their Android yeah. phones or something. <laughs> yeah, or they're working on a Mac. So yeah, it. You know, I don't necessarily see Apple ever trying to be like Microsoft Azure, but you know, it's it's nice to see them opening it up a little bit. They're too busy trying to build a car. They're they're going to skip that part of the the cloud stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I guess you never can tell. I mean, we got we got a new dub dub coming up relatively yep. soon. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes this year. Uh, we'll have to do our speculation in a couple months. Yeah, too early for the dub dub wish list episode. Yeah, I've got a few things on my short list that I'd like to see. All right, we'll save those for a couple months from now. Now we did get a new iOS 9.3 beta. I haven't, I haven't seen a whole lot of changes, at least in, from what I can see as a user. It seems like, I mean, from the first beta, there hasn't been a bunch in it. Is I mean, it's a, a .x release, so you wouldn't expect there to be that much, but I, it seems like Every new beta, there's like a new watch OS or a TV OS feature that sneaks in there. Um, I think some some new TV OS stuff just came in this last beta. Uh, some more apps or like built-in Apple apps or something like that. Okay. And then there's a there's a new app on the watch too in this last beta. I think like a updated um, Maps app maybe. And like a little home and work thing button hmm. you can click or something like that. And you're not that I don't know anyone who really uses watch apps that much, but maybe maybe this will make them do it. I don't know. But they keep adding stuff. You guys got it running on your any of your devices? I have nine. I have a running on my phone. The latest one. I did install the watch OS beta, but I haven't done the latest beta on my watch today. Yeah, I need I need to get an extra cable if I'm gonna do the watch one. 
I've been holding off on updating to the betas on any of my personal devices. Well, I wanted to have the night shift mode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah me too, which is a horrible reason to to update, but I lucked out and it hasn't been very buggy. It's been pretty stable for me on, on iOS. I'm guessing you as well, Sam? It has. Although, have you tried the app switcher on the phone and just tried to scroll a little bit? That thing is super sensitive. Hmm. At least it I'm is not online. Not much of a difference. It's, oh, yeah. I no, it's yeah, it's sensitive. I'm. I'll give it a now. just a little flick, and it goes way far. <laughs> I don't have a problem with that, but well, it's a little hard like to it. actually get the app that you want. It's it's a uh, surprising too when it happens. Like, whoa, hold on, slow down. <laughs> I normally just pull down and search whenever I want to open an app. So. I do. I do too. It's just occasionally if I'm near, if I know I was just in an app, then I'll try mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And then there's the force touch switching. Oh yeah, I totally forgot about that. One. Yeah, it's a little hard to actually activate that one. It's a lot Especially easier. To go back to the, your last app than it is to bring up the app switcher. Yeah, it's especially hard when you have a case, any kind of case on there. Yeah. But yeah, it's been a good beta so far. And I do enjoy the night shift thing. And I coupled that with Flux on my lap laptop. Yeah. And it's been a good, good combination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of reminds me to go to bed, actually, and get some sleep. <laughs> Your screen is too yellow. You must go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> this is awful. I can't stand looking at this. I'm going to bed. So are you guys still wearing your watch every day? I am. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you guys caught the post from Brent Sivens. From, uh, he's now at Omni Group, but formerly Vesper and NetNewsWire, etc. Uh, he posted a comment about just the the software glitches and performance of the watch. You take an otherwise innovative piece of technology and turns it into something that you just set on your desk and forget about. <laughs> That's the Android watch I bought as a test device. <laughs> I mean, I'm mostly, yeah, I'm mostly just using the the watch itself and you know maybe the activity tracker and stuff i'm not delving too much into anything else and that may be because of the, the performance and the bugginess but i'm guessing that'll change in a couple months hopefully yeah, i can't necessarily say that you know there's i feel like there's a lot of bugginess but i, I think i'm with you that my use of it is pretty limited like i I think the weather app on it works reasonably well. The progress activity tracker is probably my biggest motivation for putting it on every day. And then just the watch itself. Frankly, the, all the notifications on my wrists are more annoying than useful. And I've turned most of them off. Hmm. Yeah, I've been trying to call some of my notifications too. I mean, part of me wonders if, like... It's okay. I mean, it's okay for Apple to make 
devices that don't have app stores. They've had great success with the app store, but before the iPhone, uh, I mean, the default position was no app store. Like, they build it, they control the whole experience, and then things just change when they have this, you know, runaway success. Uh, maybe it's right that people don't use apps on the on the watch. I don't know. I, I definitely haven't found the killer app for the watch, but I use mine kind of sparingly, too. I use the timer on it. Mm-hmm. And I do like how Apple Maps will kind of tap you on the wrist when you're about to make a turn or something. Yeah, but, I still haven't figured out which way, how many times it things you means what. <laughs> I haven't either, but the, the catch, though, is that if I'm using Apple Maps, I'm taking a gamble of where will I actually get to my destination. So I usually end up just using Google Maps, which has a an app for the watch, but it's nowhere near what the Apple watch map, what the Apple one is. Yeah, Google hasn't been updating all their apps super quickly for iOS 9, it seems like, because I'm pretty sure they they did have APIs for like those haptic feedback things in watchOS 2, so it seems like they could make it that good. I don't know. Yeah. I know, WatchKit is, is... in its own, pretty limiting. True. Yeah, I, I think it's more the finding an app that makes sense on the watch more than anything else. The yeah. performance does suck, though. Like, there are times when I would use an app if the performance was better. Like, I've wanted to... Like, I had a, like a podcast playing on a speaker, and I want to change it from my watch, but the app takes forever to launch and I don't even know it's updated for watchOS too, but yeah, I mean, I try a couple times and it fails. And by that time I'm already like five minutes into the podcast. So I just <laughs> let it finish. <laughs> hmm. I have taken a couple phone calls on my watch recently just because my yeah. phone wasn't readily available and it's reasonably okay. The, the other person hasn't complained about the audio quality. That's what Apple's going for. It used to be, it just works now. It's reasonably okay. No <laughs> Apple's new complaints. tagline. Yeah. <laughs> no major complaints. <laughs> Apple way. So have you guys looked into RX extensions at all? I have been. Yeah. I looked at Reactive Cocoa. I've looked at Reactive Coco over the years, you know, starting the the one X days and then the the two X days with the the swiftening that they did with it. I always had a hard time with it. Yeah, yeah, you know, there's it had a pretty strong community around it, and I can definitely see the value proposition of decoupling the code and basically having signals and observers. Uh, so you don't have to you know, tie everything together, especially when you have multiple views or uh, functions that need to be updated if something else changes. Um, but there's a decent amount of conceptual overhead to Reactive Cocoa. And then you know I hear complaints about horribly nested block uh, stack traces that are 
near to impossible to decipher. Yeah. Maybe that's improved over, over time, but I don't know. Even I've looked at RX Swift and I've been implementing a, a project in that, uh, over the last few weeks. And for me, RX Swift, it, it just clicked a lot easier. Maybe it was just because I've come at this so many times now that it's finally clicking. But I find RX Swift to be a little more intuitive. It, it doesn't make some of the artificial separations that Reactive Cocoa does. Yes. And so. I think RX Swift also has the advantage of being more consistent with the. Uh, not, not open standard, but open definition of what RX is across different languages. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And so, for instance, if you want to try to chain two API calls together and then take those results, you can find a article that was written for RX Java and then almost one for one just pull the concepts over into RX Swift. So the just by that means the documentation is way more extensive than Reactive Cocoa is. Yeah. And, you know, our Android developers are really into Arcs Java right now. And, uh, you know, they're seeing a lot of value from it, but they also recognize that there's a decent learning curve to it as well. Um, I, I think there's a decent community around Rx in, in iOS, but it, think it's still a little less mature perhaps than some of the other platforms but it, it's nice to see there's a lot of articles and presentations now coming out around rx swift because for a while i i couldn't really find a whole lot outside of the the github project uh, that shared examples or explained it in any detail yeah it's, it's a relatively new uh, new, it's a relatively new kid on the block. Yeah, and framework. it's the the concept is definitely not not one for beginners. It's it's definitely an advanced level way of structuring your code. Um, you know, with that means that if you build something with RX, you know you you're going to have to account for onboarding. You know, somebody a little bit more junior taking a lot longer. Yeah, though it is nice to kind of say, instead of if this is happening, change the mindset into when this happens, do this. And that's really kind of the declarative style programming. Right, and you basically control the flow of data through your application. Right. So kind of related to that, there was a good article this week uh, called Functional Reactive intuition that had a pretty clear example of how to do it, build an app or solve a specific problem the standard way, and how there's a whole lot of temporary variables and a lot of nesting of functionality. And then they introduced Rx and it became very clear. Um, all those temporary variables went away and it was just a matter of setting up some preconditions up front and then one definition of what what the end result is. Yeah. In that article, they use some extensions in a RxSwift companion library called RxCoco. 
that kind of wraps into some of the uh, cocoa, uh, cocoa touch uh, classes and whatnot. So you can, for instance, when a button gets tapped, you can get that uh, observable and uh, filter that into something else and act upon that with our with RX Cocoa. But going back to Reactive Cocoa, I think their their uh, Cocoa integration is a little stronger than RX Swift's or RX Cocoa. Yeah, they've had a lot longer to build that up and. You know, if you're working with Reactive Cocoa, you know, you're really talking about changing all these different communication patterns. So in in Objective C and Swift, you have lots of options. You have notifications and delegates and key value observing. And this is basically a different way of of handling the inner class communication. Yeah. And in order to enable that, you've got to basically you know, what what they say in the reactive cocoa space is rackify <laughs> uh these other other libraries. Yeah. Yeah, they've, they've rack done enable. a pretty good job of doing that. But Arc Swift it does Arc Swift does have some nice things like you can create a table view data source out of a signal. And you just uh provide the table view a couple uh, basically an observable and uh, it'll dequeue your cells for you and pass them into your observable so that's kind of neat it's a different way of looking at it but yeah the the itchingpixels.com is where the reactive intuition article is at and it does I don't know it, I think I feel like I've kind of moved up the learning curve, so I'm not sure how useful it is to beginners, but it seemed like it was a good article for beginners. Yeah, definitely. And and there's some videos available as well. I think the the Swift language user group recently had a a presentation on Rx Swift. Uh that was good as well. Uh, and that's that can be found at realm.io. Okay. So another interesting library coming out, was it this week or last week? I think it came out around the same time as the Parse Apocalypse, so it was like a couple, <laughs> two weeks ago. Okay. Kind of got overlooked in that. Yeah. But yeah. So it was a, it's a JSON parsing library written in Swift. And for once, this is one that calls itself a JSON parsing library that actually parses JSON and doesn't use NSJSON serialization. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it already has a plus one in my book for that. But it's called Freddy. And it's from yeah. the Big Nerd Ranch guys. There's like a bunch of smart guys there. I've heard really good things about it from people who use it or seen it. I haven't really played with it much because I haven't really had a chance to, but Seems like it's a good little library. Yeah, I looked over the docs and and some of the code because I wanted to dig through the code to make sure that it wasn't using NSJSON serialization, which <laughs> <laughs> is a mouthful. Alex, I know you love the name. 
Yeah, yeah. Like reading through the documentation, you know, it seemed nice and clean. And, you know, my biggest reservation initially was I thought the name was kind of silly. I, I didn't like the idea of having to depend on a library called Freddy. Not that, not that you necessarily see that in code anywhere. Um, would, have, would have been better for you if it was named Frederick. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I'm just kind of being silly, but I, um, you know, my initial thought was it was like named after Five Nights at Freddy, which is seems like a a game's extremely popular right now, and there's some variations of that that game. Um, no, I'm gonna guess uh, it's Freddy Krueger. Yeah, yeah. I didn't make the connection of Jason. And Freddy. What? <laughs> yeah, so there was after even you a, said that, it made a lot more sense. There was even a Jason versus Freddy movie, I believe. Probably. <laughs> I think they were in space. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> Paramount of 1980s horror films right there. It seems like someone needs to go to space and do a blog post about the different Jason Parsing libraries. <laughs> like you're onto something there, Sam. Yeah. Has to be from space, though. All right. Well, that's gonna take a while for me. They probably won't I even say have. You to do it. They won't even have <laughs> blogs by the time I get into space. We just need to find an astronaut that's up in space. Tim Cook will have a like a voice chat with him and teach him Swift because <laughs> it's so easy. Yeah. And he'll uh, then he'll write his blog post from from the ISS. And Taylor, Piece of cake. And Taylor Swift will urge him on if he doesn't comply. In a, in an open if that letter. doesn't work, then we'll write a petition to her. And, yeah. <laughs> All right, yeah, we're getting out of control. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It. Yeah, definitely suggest checking out Freddy. There's a lot of options nowadays for JSON parsing. Uh, this one, you know, looks as good as any of the others. Yeah. I, I think some of. I think there's a handful of JSON parsers that are probably going to get shelved or have to have some major refactoring because they rely on some features that are going away in Swift 3. All right, because isn't currying going away? Yeah. And, that was, yeah, and I know... Um, Argo uses that. Yeah. Not Argo here, but the Argo <laughs> JSON parsing library. Not anymore, it won't. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was its core tenant right there. You provided yeah. it a curried init function. Yeah. So, yeah, not good. Not good for that one, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And you know, they stopped podcasting, or they haven't had a new podcast in a while. So I'm kind of curious what what kind of impact the changes with Swift three has. Whether they're gonna yeah keep going or just uh, throw in the towel and start writing Haskell. <laughs> That's one podcast I do miss. I wish yeah. they would bring that one back. Yeah, and there's been a few podcasts out there that have faded recently, which is a shame. But we're still here. On that note, I did just notice that our episode last week was uh, was exactly one year from our first podcast. So we've made it a year, guys. Wow. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Looks is like we from... skipped a week or two there, but... Yeah, was that from our episode zero that we tested? No, that was so, from episode one. Okay. Don't tell anyone about episode zero. <laughs> it's in the Lost Archives. That's bad news. <laughs> <laughs> Can't talk about that. Okay. Shh, shh. 
published episodes I'm talking about. Wow. That's a that's a feat. Yeah. Wish we would have known last week. <laughs> right. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't realize until I pushed it. I was like, "Oh, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, I just you know looked at the forty-seven and said, "Okay, well, got to be around yeah. here somewhere." Yeah. <laughs> sure, all the listeners are in awe of that they're still listening to us for some reason at this point. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are in awe of the listeners. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if any of you have been with us since day one, so what was this? card you guys had in there, somebody had in there about asynchronous error handling. Yeah, and there was a article published recently on asynchronous error handling. So, you know, it became a common pattern early on in Swift to use a result enum for error handling. So, basically, you pass in a function to a completion block that returns a result that could contain the object or uh, an error. And then Apple decided to introduce actual error handling, um, <laughs> uh, which was great. So now functions could do throws. Uh, but the downside with that is it, you can't really throw from an asynchronous function. So... If you've got some asynchronous processing, that Apple's try throw uh, pattern doesn't doesn't work. So yeah, there's nowhere to throw it to. Right. So the this article is actually really good, and I'm kind of surprised that uh, we didn't see something like this a long time ago. Um, and it it does a great job of combining the result and the throw and giving you a good, consistent pattern for handling um, those throws in the asynchronous methods or functions. So uh, I definitely recommend going and, and reading this article. It does a good job of building it up and giving you a good example of a result as well as how to, to wrap a try with the result in a consistent fashion and then he goes on to uh, introduce promises with that which kind of plays a little bit in that reactive programming space it's kind yeah, of we're a... wrapping back around at the beginning of the episode here yeah so, <laughs> so promises is it accomplishes some of the goals of reactive programming um but you know for me i kind of look at it as a a way of dipping your toes in without necessarily going full functional reactive programming. Um, but it's a nice concept, and this article shows how to use those along with the result and try to get a nice, clean way of handling those asynchronous calls. And then he goes on to mention a little bit about using Reactive Cocoa or Arc Swift as kind of the next step. Definitely recommend we'll, you guys go out and, and look at the article, and we'll include a link in the show notes. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that twist at the end, but yeah, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll have to look at that one in a little bit in a little bit more depth. Yeah, it's it's pretty good. I I've been kind of moving towards a more vanilla approach with async network calls like I've 
historically have used AF networking or Alamo Fire, and um, you know, there's some nice patterns there, but there isn't really too much about it that I couldn't just use an NSURL session. And I think that combined with something like this would would be a really nice pattern. Yeah, AF networking's big thing was back in the pre-NSURL session days where it yeah. wrapped everything, all the delegate callbacks into an operation queue. Mm-hmm. And the NSURL session kind of takes care of that for you. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, th- I think Apple learned a lot from frameworks like AF networking and those patterns kind of made their way into the, the standard library. And I, I've got a project right now that's dependent on a really old networking framework and uh, it's becoming a bit challenging to to maintain it. It's not ASI, is it? No, no, it's okay. not that old. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's a big app and the framework is pervasive throughout the code and moving away from it's going to be painful, but it's starting to have conflicts with some of the newer uh, tools. And uh, Does it kit. have kit in the name by any chance? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's very kind of lazy. Maybe. Uh, there, there's, some, uh, there's some comments uh, on the on the issue tracker for the project from the committers not wanting to spend time on it anymore because they don't they haven't used it for years uh, which is a bit discouraging Never a good sign <laughs> but this is one of those things that uh, large code base that we inherited that uh, it's it's going to take some effort to get away from the old framework but um, you know our, our friend Josh Brown wrote a good article about decision process of when and when not to use a third-party library and uh, you know this is one of those cases where there were lots of it's a big framework and then it depends on other frameworks and it becomes there's it comes with a lot of baggage and I think when you can stay away from a third-party framework and use what Apple provides in the long run you're in most cases you're better off True, but I will say this for Alamo Fire and AF Networking. They do provide some good practices for doing certain things like, say, client certificate or SSL certificate pinning so you can't get man-in-the-middle attacks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're, you know, whether you use them or not, there's a lot to learn from those frameworks. Yeah. And... uh you know, Matt Thompson especially, you know, he's he's a smart guy and um there's some really nice patterns in LMO Fire. Like I right now I really like the router pattern where you have an enum to construct an NS mutable request. And it's a really nice type safe way of building up your, your requests. So Yeah. But it's not really specific to LMO Fire, so you could use that with or without it. Right. Hmm. I, I experimented a little bit with uh, using enums for my storyboard segues, and I, it was okay. I'm not sure I got a great benefit out of it. Uh, 
I would definitely recommend you use r.swift. I've been using it for a little while now, and it's really nice. You just put a little precompile script in, and it'll generate all your enums for you. It'll interrogate your storyboards and pull out all your identifiers and storyboard names and a um, handful of other things. I, I find it really handy. It'll also go through your image asset catalog and create enums for that. Hmm. Yeah, I might try that out. It, I was, it was just a small experiment to see how well it would work. And then I kind of found myself using raw value all, a lot. And just... well, that's why you use this. So you don't have. Yeah. Raw value. Right. Either one of you want to talk to the Swift API transformation? I can. Um, so another thing that happened recently is uh, Apple kind of is starting to prepare us for the great Swift API transformation. Uh, they're taking all of our Objective-C libraries and uh, they're basically changing how they get imported into Swift into a more kind of Swifty way, if you will. They're getting rid of all the NSs in front of everything. Uh, and they're changing like method parameters and stuff like that to be more Swift-like. So it seems like it's going to be a big, big change with Swift 3. Hopefully they'll have some some tools to automate some of that transition because it's going to break a lot of code i think <laughs> <laughs> yeah i could see that being problematic you know especially with um the lack of namespaces well they're kind of there right if you have two types that conflict with each other you can use the module name of the types you can where it's that's bitten me before, even with private frameworks that I have no access to. <laughs> um, I, you know, there are, are things like, you know, in my case, Core Data had access to the private framework type. I didn't. Uh, so, like in iOS 9, a class was introduced in a private header with the same name as one of my class names, and uh, Core Data tried to use use a, a different version of the class. Hmm. So I ended up with a really weird uh, break in my crash of my application because uh, Cordata was good to instantiate the object that I wanted. Because it wasn't an NS-managed object? And yours was, but the other one wasn't? Yeah. Yeah, it was one of those things where I'm looking at my code. It's an NS-managed object, I swear. <laughs> I see it right there. And then, you know, it just happens that I decided to Google that class name and found that it was in a private he header hmm. uh, that was introduced in iOS 9. Hmm. So that was kind of a weird thing. I I did a, I did the right thing and prefixed my class as I'm supposed to and to avoid that sort of conflict. You know, Apple... Um, I, I think I use the three-letter prefix, and Apple typically uses two. And it still bit you. 
Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's that's tough sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It took me a while to to figure that out, and I'm not sure what made me think to to Google for it, but. Yeah, I ran into a situation when iOS 9 actually was released and the code base I was working on had a method that wasn't in previous versions of iOS but was in iOS 9 and so all the everything was blowing up. Even old versions of the app <laughs> were blowing up on iOS 9 because this it was calling this method that the code base had in it and not the uh, framework method. And uh, that took quite a few days of trying to figure out what was going on. Seems like that stuff is a lot less likely to happen. Swift though, right? I would think so. Especially with Swift. From Swift to Swift, I would definitely think so. From Swift to Objective-C, it might be a bit of a gamble or objective c to swift well, uh, most people aren't calling swift from objective c if anything it's the other way around and shouldn't that be fairly safe as well or i guess the bridging header could bring all yeah. kinds of crazy stuff in and that's where you could get into those same types of issues you guys are describing well, i think i think um probably you're calling swift from objective c just as much as the other way around in my experience right? oh yeah, yeah. Well, if if you got an application that has a healthy mix of both, short of rewriting every time you touch something that's Swift, rewriting that class in Swift as well, you're probably going to have some interaction there. Yeah, and yeah. I was just thinking every time you're calling any like foundation or UI kit thing, you're calling Objective C from Swift. But yeah, yeah, you're right. There's there's a lot of both ways. Yeah, but I I think you're right. Generally speaking, that uh, Swift does a better job of, of managing modules and and visibility. Well, it's it's more bound at compile time, linking time, rather than runtime. Yeah, you know, when you're calling a Swift, when you're calling from Swift into Objective C, that's still going to come down to the OBGC, obey message. Bat. Yeah. Message send? Yes, guy. the message send. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you call into Objective-C from Swift, it's going to go into the uh, message send call. So you're in dynamic territory at that point. Yeah. Yeah, true. Well, it seems like there's still some things that they're trying to figure out, too. So if you... Want to make sure they get some of these safety things right, maybe? Or you just have some suggestions on what you want the syntax to look like. Check out the Swift Evolution stuff we've talked about in the past and help them figure it out. Yeah. And the, be the best tip would be if you have an object that's named something that's already named with an NS prefix, you might want to rename your object. Like NS object if you have an object type, for instance or copying, coding, any one of those. Yeah. I think there's a decent number of libraries out there that are like that. I think Realm Swift library actually has an object called object. Oh, yeah. really? 
pretty it, problematic. In Objective C, I think it's RLM object, and then I think the Swift version is just object. Because uh, it's in the Rome module, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So it, it may not be an issue, but it's. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. We'll have to see what kind of chaos this <laughs> this wrecks or doesn't wreck. This new Swiftening. Yeah. I'm sure it'll be fine. And, you know, those are pretty blatant issues. The one I mentioned is very obscure. Yeah, these are going to be mm. pretty typical scenarios. So I'm I'm sure that's something they're taking into consideration. We've got until September or so to iron this all out, right? Yeah. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe we'll get like first class namespaces. Hmm. <laughs> we'll get we'll get first class namespaces right after we get our uh, awesome refactoring support. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going back to my short list of of things <laughs> for for Dub Dub. Save it, save it. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I think that's about it for tonight. Yeah, we've run out of things to say. We're else we're gonna save it for the rest of the episodes. Do you guys want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Yeah, you can find me at AJ Robinson on Twitter. I'm at Alex Argo. And and I'm at Sam Quarter. The podcast is at Shared Inst on Twitter, and we have our Slack chat that you guys are all welcome to join. It's chat.sharedinstance.com for the sign-up. And we haven't had an app of the week in a while, so join us on Slack and let us know about your apps uh, so we can share it with the podcast. Yeah, definitely. All right, thanks, guys.